Daniel chapter 4. I invite your attention with me this morning. Daniel 4, which is in your pew Bibles at page 740. This will be our last look at King Nebuchadnezzar during our time in Daniel together. And a very good look it will be. Good in the sense that it will be deep. Deeper into Nebuchadnezzar's heart than we've gone thus far. And good in the sense that it will be a happy look into Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Well, happy after it's sad first. But the contrast between the two will make the happy all the happier for the comparison. What we're about to read has been described as a royal decree. But it's more of a royal open letter, really, to everyone, including us. To everyone who is willing to receive it. It's a different sort of offering than we have received from Nebuchadnezzar to this point, in that it is just that, an offering rather than, as has been his want to give, an order. More an an invitation than an imposition. Nebuchadnezzar is holding out to us this morning the key to a truly blessed life, even as he offers to us the cure for our, what is all of our most fundamental and rudimentary sin, what C.S. Lewis calls, or called, the great sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word addresses us directly and goes right to the heart, divides bone from marrow, which can be a very painful thing, but it's what we need. And so we pray that you will minister to us now with the sword, the double-edged sword of your word. Perform your surgery on our hearts, we pray, Father, that we may be the more faithful and obedient children of yours, that we may delight where our delight should be found in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel 4, the whole chapter, a rather long reading, but the Lord will give us grace to keep our attention fixed. King Nebuchadnezzar, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at my ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream... I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heavens and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, abundant and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. 
It is you. O King, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound by a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation O King, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power and as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, 
And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now, I... Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. In 1715... Another king, King Louis XIV of France, died after a reign of 72 years, the longest of any French king. He had called himself, you might remember, the Great. He was the monarch who made famous the statement, I am the state. He had a most magnificent, extravagant court, the most magnificent in Europe. And he planned his own funeral to be just as spectacular. The king instructed that upon his death, he was to lie in state in a golden coffin at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. He further instructed that his funeral service, at his funeral service, the entire cathedral was to be dark, completely dark, and lit by but one candle positioned above his coffin so that all would be awed by the king's presence, even in death. When Louis died, Bishop Massillon did exactly as the king had instructed. At the funeral, thousands waited in hushed silence as they peered at the exquisite casket that held the remains of their monarch. But as he began his funeral oration, Massillon slowly reached down and snuffed the candle and said, Only God is great. Too bad for Louis XIV that he learned this too late. Learned that only God is great, but it was too late for him. But blessed be the God Most High that Nebuchadnezzar got to learn it. 
during his life. Got to come in this serious crisis and through the serious crisis that it required for him, come to the conviction that only God is great. It came upon him only after he, standing there above and surveying his kingdom, declared essentially, only I am great. The scene's not very difficult to imagine, is it? Twelve months after the dream that should have humbled him to the dust, Nebuchadnezzar instead thrust out his chest as he strolled across the roof of his palace, looking down on his kingdom and talking to himself, saying, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, had you been standing there next to him that day, you would have been inclined to agree with him about the greatness of Babylon. Here's a summary of her greatness. Babylon was a rectangularly shaped city surrounded by a broad and deep water-filled moat and then by an intricate system of double walls. The first double wall system encompassed the main city. Its inner wall was 21 feet thick and reinforced with defense towers at 60-foot intervals, while the outer wall was 11 feet in width and also had its set of watchtowers. Later, Nebuchadnezzar added another defensive double wall system, an outer wall 25 feet thick and an inner wall 23 feet thick east of the Euphrates that ran the incredible distance of 17 miles and was wide enough at the top for chariots to pass on the wall. The height of the walls we do not know, but the Ishtar Gate was 40 feet high and the walls would likely have approximated that size. A 40-foot wall would have been a formidable barrier for enemy soldiers. Now, for that description, we haven't said anything about the magnificent gardens, the famous hanging gardens that he had built for his wife's sake, having brought her to Babylon away from her beautiful homeland, one of the seven ancient wonders, or as seven wonders of the ancient world. Babylon was great. It was absolutely great in a real sense. It was great. That was not the problem. The problem was in the pronouns. The pronouns are the problem. I and my. I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar was to put it in a word. Proud. Proud not in the good sense, as in, son, I'm proud of you. Proud in the darkest, blackest, most sinister sense of pride. The pride that gives glory to me. 
that credits me, that measures everything by me and I and my. And boy, do we have an eagle's eye, don't we, for Nebuchadnezzar's pride. We can spot his pride a mile away. In fact, we have, you and I have a sensitivity, a keen sensitivity for pride wherever it exists, don't we, in other people. We can zoom in and identify the great sin everywhere it's found in everyone around us. We're experts at identifying the great sin in others. And when we see it, we hate it. We hate it with a passion. But there's the stinger, brothers and sisters. To the degree that we hate pride in others, we have it in ourselves. As C.S. Lewis put it in his little classic, Mere Christianity, the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. How much do you dislike pride in others? Answer that question and you'll know how much pride in you. Ouch. And more than ouch, dear flock, Nebuchadnezzar's pride and his subsequent fall, his descent into bestial existence, must be for us a loud wake-up call. He snoozed through his wake-up call, didn't he? The dream, then Daniel's interpretation of it, he snoozed through the wake-up call, and so now he lives the nightmare of seven years of eating grass with dew on his back and scratching at the ground with nails like talons. Oh, but pride's not my problem, you say, right? Pride's not your problem. As a matter of fact, you're anything but proud, right? As a matter of further fact, you hate yourself. You loathe yourself. You can't think of one good thing about yourself, though you spend all day long trying to come up with even one. But that, my brothers and sisters, is just pride inverted. That's all that is. You're still talking about you. This is still about you. Whether you love yourself or hate yourself, it's about you. Your eyes are still on you. Whether you are looking to yourself to compliment or to criticize, to brag or to berate, it's still about you. And what is more, to quote Lewis again, if you think that you're not conceited, It means that you're very conceited, indeed. Nebuchadnezzar had no corner on pride. This was not just his little special sin, just for him. It lurks in the depths of all of us, of all of our hearts. 
In fact, it is the impetus. It it is the deepest motive behind every one of our sins. Every sin we commit against God and against others springs from pride. From a a focus on ourselves. a, A placing of ourselves some way, somehow, above others and against God. You don't have to dig very deeply behind any of the sins that you commit to find underlying pride. Some of you know that that, uh, the wildly popular evangelical leader and pastor, John Piper, took an eight-month sabbatical a few years ago to deal, he said, with some of the sins of his heart. Among other things, he said he and his wife, Noel, had work to do on their marriage. And he explained in his report to the congregation upon his return, quote, I would label my decades-long besetting and I hope weakening sins in this relationship as selfishness, self-pity, anger, blaming, and sullenness. All of them, he added, species of pride. My point in quoting Pastor Piper is that those five sins are the same as a thousand sins. They're really all just species as he calls them, species of pride. Of thinking not only too highly of ourselves, but just plain thinking too much of ourselves. Sometimes God, being the very gracious and loving God that he is to us, who are his children through faith in Christ, imposes some difficult providence upon us to remove the blinders from our eyes to show us what our hearts really contain. He exposes our pride to us. Sometimes he exposes it to others too. And dear flock... That is a deeply painful, profoundly painful experience. But he doesn't do that to hurt us. He does it to heal us. He does it to help us. He does it to transform us from the inside out. That is the gracious favor that he did for Nebuchadnezzar. Well, some favor, you say. Some favor was that. Seven years of life as a beast of people who once bowed, now wagging their heads at him. But it was gracious of God to drive him from his place of honor, to teach him humility. Let's learn this for ourselves right now. Shall we please God? Let us learn it now. When Nebuchadnezzar was at his ease, 
pride held the reins. But when disaster strikes, and when our comforts are replaced with discomfort and dis-ease, these are often God's way of bringing spiritual growth and the kind of change that we so desperately need. See, when we're at our leisure, When things are clicking right along in our lives and everything's bright and rosy, it's not very likely, is it, that we're going to pursue the kind of deep change that that follow honest searchings of our hearts and attitudes and thoughts and motives. But when things turn topsy-turvy, and seem even to be falling apart around our ears. When That's when God is making us ready, you see, to adjust our steps. So rather than dreading the troubles we face, let us embrace them. Let's embrace them as God working, God doing important things in our lives, exposing our hearts to the light, to teach us about ourselves and so much more importantly to teach us about him. What you find about yourself at such times, at such tumultuous times, if you're honest, will be painful. It is painful. It's so painful to see your own heart And the depths of it. Since you once thought, you really thought that you were impervious to them. That you would never do that. When you have the soil of your heart disturbed by the divine earthquake or carved away by the sharp trowel of affliction will be seen there in the soil growing Seedlings, even setting root, turns out you really were beast-like. You may not have murdered, but you hated. You may not have stolen, but you've coveted. And on and on the list goes But don't keep your eyes there long, Christians. Don't keep your eyes there long. Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes. That was Nebuchadnezzar's problem, you see. His problem was one of focus. His problem was where his eyes were turned. He was always, Nebuchadnezzar was always looking around and always looking down. His eyes were on his accomplishments. His eyes were turned, as impressive as they were, they were were turned to what his hands had had done to what he had accomplished or what he considered to be his own accomplishments. And his eyes were always looking down on other people, on those other people who, to his way of thinking, were not nearly as impressive as he was. And then they were turned here, on I, on me, on my. That's where his, did you notice that? That's where his eyes were at the beginning of this episode. But where were they in the end? Not on wonderful, impressive me. Not on poor, pitiful, miserable me. Not on me at all. 
Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. What did he find when he finally turned his eyes upward? He found this, that as great as his great sin was, God's grace was greater. I have two jobs this morning as your pastor. In fact, it's my job every week. The first is to show you the greatness of your sin. I hate that job. Because I know just how painful it is. I really do. To look squarely in the face of your sin. How embarrassing. How frustrating. How humiliating. How defeating. How disheartening. But I love the second part of my job. Even more than I hate the first part. That is to show you, by God's grace, something of the greatness, of the greaterness of the grace of God. How restoring, how refreshing, how uplifting, how victorious, how heartening the grace that your heavenly Father has for you and pours out on you. The flood of His grace that rolls over you, that forgives your sin, that washes it away, that removes it as far as the east is from the west, that He pours out on you, yes, you, And on me. Think about it. What kind of sinner was Nebuchadnezzar? What kind of sinner? He was a wicked, arrogant, prideful murderer. He was the devastator of families. He was the promoter of himself, the persecutor of Israel, a man who used others and then cast them away like so much trash at his whim and fancy. He was a user and an abuser who left a trail of heartbreak and despair and tears behind him. He was a beast in every sense of the word. To call Nebuchadnezzar a rat would require us to apologize to the rats. Because at least the rats are what they are because they're beasts. Yet God's grace was not overused or overextended to redeem Nebuchadnezzar. To save him, to make him a child of God through faith that day. 
And if God's grace is sufficient to save such a man as he, it is certainly not overstretched or overspent to save you and to redeem you and to make you a child of God. How can it be so? How can we look at Nebuchadnezzar and see him as the demonstration of God's power to save, of the, the reach of God's mercy to take hold of you? How can any of this be so? How has he made it so? Well, just this. There was another king. You remember? Another king. And this king could truly look over, not only over one city or over one empire, but of the entirety of creation. And this king could say, Is this not the world which I have made by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Not just one of the ancient wonders of the world, but the entire world. He spoke into being by the word of his power. But rather than exalting himself, he humbled himself. He became a man. He became a servant of men. He humbled himself to the point where he was on his hands and knees, washing his disciples' filthy feet. And then he took it even further. He went all the way to the cross, to the shameful and humiliating death of the cross. He had done nothing wrong. There was no deceit in his mouth like there is in yours and in mine. Yet he, the sinless one, became sin for us. He was marred beyond human appearance. You might even say he looked like a beaten beast. The people wagged their heads at him. He willingly voluntarily humbled himself that much for this purpose, this single purpose, to redeem you from your pride and from the consequences of it. To redeem a people for himself. You know that king's name, don't you? It is Jesus. Today he's high and exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is glorified and wonder of wonders. The Bible says that his glory is your glory. Because he is glorified, you are glorified and will be glorified too with him. Now I say to you, in God's name, turn your eyes on. 
Take them off of yourself. Off of your successes and off of your failures. I mean off of yourself completely and totally where they belong on him. Turn your eyes to Jesus and looking to him, learn again and again and again that as foul as you are, you may fly to that fountain for washing and freely receive it. That as unlovely as you are, you will find in him more love than you ever dared to dream. His love for you. You are a beast in your sin. It's true. But your senses are restored when you lift your eyes like one earthly dew-soaked king did long, long ago. Turn eyes in faith to the heavenly king of kings. You are low, but the exalted one exalts you. Because while he most certainly as Nebuchadnezzar pointed out, humbles the proud, even more certainly, he exalts the humble. Therefore I say, in God's name, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Amen.